and welcome to Project Psychology. This is brought to you by the Oxford University Psychology Society. I'm your host, Junior Crawford, the president of the society and an undergraduate reading experience in psychology at Wadham College, Oxford. The aim of Project Psychology is to encourage more discussions surrounding the science of human behaviour. Episodes will consist of interviews with special guests who are experts within their field. They'll join me weekly to share and discuss their unique insights within psychology and other related sciences. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today is great to have Dr. Brian Nosek on the podcast. Ryan is a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. He's also the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Open Science, as well as the co-founder of Project Implicit. Ryan received his bachelor's from California Polytechnic State University in 1995 and went on to earn two master's degrees and a PhD from Yale University, completing his PhD in 2002. Ryan's research focuses on the gap between values and practices, with a key focus on implicit social cognition, as well as reproducibility of psychological science. Ryan, welcome to Project Psychology. Thanks, I'm glad to be here. I wanted to just start with um, a background of your journey. Um, so how did you, starting from school, how did you realize you wanted to, to pursue a career within psychology and then specifically um, to develop an interest studying implicit attitudes? Yeah, uh, I, well, I went to undergrad at Cal Poly, which is an engineering focused school. Right. Uh, and I was in, uh, com- went in as a computer engineering major. And that, so I started in 1990. Uh, and as I was going through the program, I started taking psychology and women's studies courses as a break from the, you know, the real classes, the engineering courses. And my engineering grades started to go down and I noticed I was spending all my time on those uh, women's studies and psych classes. And it was a, sort of an awakening of, oh, you can do science on people? That's, that's amazing. Like, wow, we can study why we're doing all this weird stuff. Uh, so that, it just was sort of obvious that it was very exciting and I was engaged in it uh, as a area of inquiry much more than the circuits classes that I was not resonating with to the degree that I was sort of feeling the passion. Now, of course, when I called my parents in 1994 saying, I think I'm going to leave computer engineering at the onset of the internet for psychology. They, they had some questions, yeah, <laughs> like, what are you doing? Uh, that doesn't sound like a very wise move. Uh, but they were supportive nevertheless, because I was uh, passionate about, um, no, this is something I'm really into. Uh, and so I, I made the leap and switched majors in my fourth year of undergrad, spent you know, the next year and a half you know, getting all of the additional credits I needed for these other degrees, uh, and then went on to grad school. Right. Um, so did you start with an interest in gender uh, and did that like yeah. narrow down into implicit social cognition? Yeah, totally. The, these women's studies classes to me were fascinating because it really um, started to help congeal things that I've been observing in the world. I, growing up, I, I didn't really get gender differences or why people made such a big deal out of it. It just, for whatever reason, it just didn't click with me and how I interacted with the world. Um, and so I really enjoyed those classes. And then uh, I had an advisor on the psychology side named Sean Byrne and her, she d- did a lot of research on uh, related to psychology of gender, sex roles and related things. Uh, and it was just really constructive for me to start to think about, okay, so how do we think about why gender roles have emerged in the way that they did? Why people respond so differently on the basis of gender? Uh, what what re, what's the real differences and what are really constructed differences from the social situation and so i applied to grad school with that as sort of a core interest uh and when i went to work with mazarin banaji 
that started with a focus on gender. So my first projects were about uh, sex differences in engagement in science, technology, engineering, math disciplines. What, what accounts for the sex gap in participation in these domains? And the, my master's thesis was about the potential that so we may automatically sort of orient more or less towards different disciplines, not really understanding the causal origins of that, but we wanted to understand, is there a link between our automatic responses for different fields uh, and does that differ by gender and potentially account for why people or part of how people make different decisions and which fields they go into. So the, yeah. that gender component really was a was at the core at the at the onset. So what did you find out then? So I, your thesis title for your master's was gender differences in implicit attitudes towards mathematics. So what does the literature say on these biases and how do they affect males and females in choosing subject choices? Yeah, so what we started with, so the, the first studies were right as the implicit association test was just starting to get used. So my advisor, Mazarin Banaji, and her advisor was Tony Greenwald. Uh, the two of them had their labs working together on trying to measure thoughts and feelings that might occur outside of awareness or outside of conscious control and how they might be influential in different kinds of decisions. A lot of that work was in race. Uh, and then there was recognition that, oh, this might, these tools might be applicable beyond uh, race, maybe also for gender and age and sexual orientation and any other kinds of social categories and identities that we might study. So the first studies were responding to an accidental discovery that Tony and Mazarin had in their very first tests, where they wanted for the IAT, which tries to measure how much people associate things in memory. Uh, and sometimes those might be very different than what their conscious values and beliefs are. They wanted to create a control condition task where obviously people would show no difference in how they respond to these these things that you see so that you could have some basis of comparison for things where they may might obviously have a difference so their control condition test was letters and numbers and they just wanted to see do people associate positivity or negativity more with letters or numbers there's no reason people would do that so obviously there won't be any effect right what they observed was that there was this consistent favoring of letters over numbers and that was much stronger among women than among men and they're like, that's weird. <laughs> Why did that yeah. happen? Right? It's just a control task. And then, of course, the light bulb went off as, oh, maybe it's not a control task. Maybe we're actually seeing something about favoring of things related to numeracy or mathematical concepts versus things related to language. So that's when I arrived was they had this weird data. And they said, what's up with this? You want to study this? And I was like, yeah. yes, I want to study that. That is exactly what I want to study because I love this sort of idea of, could we have thoughts in our minds that are different than our values and that we might not really recognize that might be able to be able to control. And now could I connect that with this interest in why men and women do different things or we perceive men and women differently or whatever it is that's going on with gender. Uh, so our initial studies were just to first replicate that finding, which comes out very uh, straightforwardly. We were able to, when we put into actual mathematical and language concepts, you see favoritism for language over math in general, and much stronger for women doing that. And then we started to say, well, let's see if we can connect this to the actual stereotype of men being more science or math oriented than women. And so we redesigned the measure and we tried to assess how strongly people associate gender categories, male and female, 
with concepts related to science and math versus arts. And we found that both men and women did that. Uh, and in fact, women often did it to a stronger degree, not always, uh, but sometimes did a stronger degree than men did. And then we found, okay, so they have these associations in memory. And then when we ask people, do you think men should be in science and women should be in arts or and variations of the stereotype, people would consciously reject that. But then we looked at, is that strength of association, how much people automatically associate science with male more than female, is that linked to what people actually do? Yeah. And that's where the patterns are fascinating. Uh, people's choice of major is related to that association in their head. People's performance in the domain is related to that. People's identity as someone who is a science person or a math person is related to that association, but not their conscious stereotype about it. Sure. So we don't have any insight. Still, we don't have good insight on the causal dynamic. Right. Yeah, that would have been my next question. Right. Oh, yeah. wouldn't that be a great study <laughs> to be able to show that these sort of associations cause it? My guess, and we have some preliminary evidence from that line of work, is that it's a, it is multidirectional. Right. right? But once you have those associations in your memory of that's for that, uh, co that concept, science, math is for men. I'm not a man. So I don't feel the pull uh, towards math right. and science as much. But simultaneously, you can imagine the reverse. I make some choice about what class to take. And then that helps create and reinforce the associations in my memory. Right. So I, I suspect that it is a very complex uh, dynamic of how it is these come to be related. But the fact that they are related for us was like, that's mind blowing. Yeah. Because these are just associations in our head that, uh, that people genuinely say, I don't, I don't agree with them. Yeah, that might be in my head, but I don't believe it. So couldn't your research be applied to juries, for example? So say if someone wanted to understand any biases about jury members potentially had then maybe using something like an implicit association task may find these underlying biases, right? Like say if it was found that overall a significant amount of jury members did have a very strong negative attitude towards black individuals and then the defendant in the case was black. Like this seems particularly relevant and may, as you describe, if attitudes do correlate to some extent to behaviour, this may affect the verdict, right? So would you encourage these sort of applications of your research or would you say that such applications may go too far or beyond the science? It would be going beyond the validity of the measures and in their predictive capacity. Right. right in the scenario you described of, sure. of selecting people for a, uh, for a jury. It's not, so there are a couple of things I think here to consider. One is that I understand deeply the poll. As soon as the uh, work started to come out, people have thought about, oh, this is obvious. If we can see something about people's automatic responses and that has any link to their behaviors, then we should use that to help yeah. make sure that we are having a fair, just, equitable society. So I think that the motivation in that direction comes from very genuine places. The, there's multiple challenges. One is that there are links uh, between these implicit measured concepts and behaviors of consequence. There is an association. They tend to be relatively weak. These don't account for a substantial portion of the people's behavior. They account for some, uh, sure. a small portion. And the real impact of that is probably more cumulative over time, right? If, if it accounts for a little bit of my behavior for who to decide to put in the, if I'm doing a hiring process, who do I decide to put in the shortlist or not? 
Yeah. Well, it may not have much impact on each individual, but it may have a cumulative impact that leads to disparate impact for the black versus white applicants or the male versus female applicants or whatever. Sure. But that's always irrelevant, right? Right. Yeah. 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 So that is important and it's cumulative over time. But the second factor that I think is, is besides the, these measures are still in their early stages. They're not perfectly reliable measures. There's high variability when you take a test to test. So that is a concern for application to making decisions about people. But the other part is that the associations aren't inevitable either. We don't have evidence to say, show, for example, that just because I have this association in my head means that I will behave in line with those associations right. across different circumstances. So it's still plausible, even with the literature that exists today, that the, just the right kind of situation for making decisions or just the right kind of instructions for how one makes decisions can be overwhelm any of these kinds of associations that might be in memory. We just don't know yet. So the, I think what the, I hope will happen is this continuing maturation of this area of research and people who want to apply it, sort of looking at what are the limitations, what's the evidence suggest about its reliability, its predictive validity, and the, it, the opportunities for intervention to prevent the unwanted biases when they're there, and then make decisions about what is appropriate for applying it versus not. Yeah, that sounds fair. Um, yeah, so some of your work focuses on biases within the political landscape within the US. So, for example, against for the Democrats versus Republicans. So in what ways do these biases affect um, how people perceive others based on their political affiliation? Yeah, this is, to me has been some of the most fun work in uh, implicit bias because it goes after some of the things that we think about in politics where there, there are clear sides. <laughs> There's a lot of judgment about other people who are on the other side. And there's a strong interest in believing that we are separate from the partisanship. Right. Oh, yeah. Those other people are biased in their politics. I'm objective sure. in my politics. I just consider the evidence and I support the politicians or the policies that are aligned with my principles, blah, blah, blah. And I, I love that independent spirit and that independent goal and that desire. And I think that that general mindset is kind of how it plays out in the social biases too, right? Oh, I'm not racist. I try to judge people by content of their character, not by the yeah. color. That core principle, I think, plays out in a much more explicit way in, in the political system. Oh, right. Okay. Right. In the social system, ooh, I can't really talk about that because that makes people anxious and nervous to talk about race and blah, blah, blah. In politics, oh yeah, I hate those guys. Those guys on that side, oh, they're idiots. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's an interesting playground for looking at these issues. And where, the, at the same time, the challenge in that domain is people are willing to talk about it. So you wonder what's the role of implicit stuff in politics? People are willing to say they, they hate those guys or they support this or this. To me, the really interesting area for how we might be influenced without recognizing it is when we think we're pursuing objective decisions. When it is we think we are tangling with the evidence, not just playing partisanship games. And so what we found, some the core ideas of what we found in this, some work uh, by Carly Hawkins and then uh, some collaborations with some others, is that people are influenced by their political biases, or at least their political implicit political biases are related with their decisions when they are evaluating policies 
So we've done these studies where uh, all you do is you have the same exact policy and all you do is change what party is proposing it. So right. in the US, it's a Democrat proposing it or Republican. And then we observe that no matter what the content of the policy is, people will favor the one that's proposed by their party. They do that explicitly, not a surprise. Uh, but it's also their tendency to do that is predicted by their implicit party identity. How strongly do they favor Democrats versus Republicans predicts their likelihood of doing that. And then we went one step further and looked at people who say they're independent. I don't want either. The, the, all these party folks are boneheads. I'm not in it. I'm not in it. I'm not interested. I make judgments based on policy quality of that. Well, even they have variation in their implicit political identities. So I claim independence, but if you measure me with the IAT, I might show a strong favoritism for Democrats over Republicans. And what we find is that even with people who are self-proclaimed independent, that implicit bias predicts their policy assessments. So if it has an E, uh, meaning Democrat, then, oh yeah, I'm totally on board. If it has an R, uh-uh, I'm not touching that policy. And I'll, and I'll tell you, it's because of the policy's features. Oh, it doesn't do this, and it doesn't do that, and I don't like this amount, or whatever, blah, blah, blah. So that, to me, is really an interesting area uh, for understanding the potential dynamics of our automatic thoughts uh, with how we make decisions. So are these biases as pervasive in other political landscapes? Or is there just something about the American US like political system that makes these biases as wrong? We don't, we don't know for sure. Um, I haven't seen the studies like I've described sure. done in other contexts, but there is work on implicit political biases in other national contexts. Um, and many of the same kinds of things are observed uh, when this is done elsewhere. It's more complex to study in a lot of other systems. The American system, to all its detriments, has the benefit of it's really simple. There's two parties. Yeah. Uh, and there are other ones, but they don't matter. Yeah. Uh, there's really two parties. Uh, and so you can really set up contrasts and experimental manipulations that do that well. Whereas these systems that have 15 parties and you don't know who the leader is, all, you know, all the crazy dynamics of the political systems. They're just harder to study with some of these simplistic implicit measurement tools that we use. Sure. Uh, so that might be some of the barrier. But my guess is that the, a lot of the dynamics play out in similar ways, particularly on this idea of I am independent from or objective as a thinker and reasoner from the political landscape. I think to the extent that you can study that, I would anticipate this would apply anywhere. Because I think that even outside of the political system, that's a pervasive desire. I want right. to be objective. I want to be seen as and think of myself as objective. And of course, I'm not. We yeah. all have this stuff playing in the background. So how would you go about reducing um, undesirable biases? Because one might think if you're more mindful of these biases, then you're more motivated to identify um, inconsistencies between the values you endorse and your implicit attitudes. Therefore, you'd be better at correcting them. But it could have the opposite effects, right? Like if yeah. you're in a job interview and you're, you're, and you're an employer, being hyper aware of these biases may not actually serve you, right? Yeah. yeah, I think you're exactly right, is that it is not obvious because both of those possibilities are very plausible. Uh, and it seems likely that both of them play out in different circumstances. Right. Um, the, there is evidence suggesting that both of them can play out, but we do not yet have a good evidence base for understanding what are effective ways to avoid the unwanted biases uh, that come up. Um, there, 
there's lots and lots of research. And so when I say that as a general conclusion, I mean in the sort of the specificity, there's sure. lots of interesting, promising possibilities. Now there's lots of dead ends <laughs> that right. have been observed. Uh, and there, there are some really interesting things. So there's a paper that Jordan Axt and I published recently yeah. where the, it was totally surprising to us that this actually seems to have worked. Uh, but a, as simple an intervention as calling out what the potential source of bias is in this particular context that we used was enough to dramatically reduce the likelihood of the bias occurring in behavior. Could you describe the context in which the participants run during this experiment? Yeah, sure. The, um, this was a situation where we had people making, and it, it, we varied it in some ways, but the prototype situation was people were deciding who to admit to an honor society. Right. So you would see some criteria for their qualities. Uh, they had a high uh, GPA, grade point sure. average in the U.S. They had great scores on standardized tests. They did well or not in the interview context. And so you'd see a collection of scores. You were told about half of the people you see you can admit to the honor society, about half you have to reject. Uh, and, uh, and you should weight the criteria about equally. Right. And we knew, based on how we constructed the criteria, which of the, which of the candidates were better or worse. There, there is an objectively right answer sure. if they applied the criteria correctly. And so because of that, we could estimate how much they might be biased by irrelevant details. So we could, right. for example, manipulate whether they were men or women. We could manipulate whether they come from your school or another school. Uh, we can manipulate their uh, ethnicity with a, a picture of a face or their attractiveness uh, with a face. Uh, so what, so that, this is a really useful paradigm uh, for studying these biases. And so what we would do is things like we might manipulate two features. We might manipulate attractiveness and gender, say, but then we call out one of them. Oh, just wanted to let you know that in this kind of paradigm, sometimes people use the attractiveness of the candidate as a basis for right. deciding who should be in the honor society or not. And of course, you, you shouldn't do that, right? It's yeah, a, yeah. Beauty competition, this is a intellectual competition yeah. uh calling that out reduces their bias in the test they're right. more accurate and less likely to uh admit more attractive people over less attractive uh when you call it out uh, but it doesn't change their bias on gender and vice versa right so it, it the at least the evidence that we have so far suggests that you have to explicitly call out the dimension so that people can invoke whatever control processes they do to say oh yeah that's irrelevant avoid it but that's only one half of your points of, well, yeah, that might be useful in some cases. It might have an ironic effect in other cases. We're calling yeah. it out. Now, oh my gosh, they are beautiful. Holy cow. Yeah. Now, right? <laughs> Everything else around them looks beautiful. Uh, so who the, I bet that that does occur under some situations. We just don't see it in that particular set of studies. Sure. So and what topics regarding implicit social cognition are you more interested in now? The, I, this is one of the challenges of having moved into this uh, area of, of doing work on open science and culture right. change, that I have essentially zero time left for doing oh, no. implicit social cognition, which is I love, and there's so many interesting questions still to investigate. Uh, so really, the, if you look at my publication history, it's like, oh, no, he's still doing lots of research. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's what I thought. Yeah, well, it's because those were done five years ago. Right. <laughs> it just took, forever. <laughs> it took forever to write them up and get them published. Sure. Uh, so really, all of the work that I'm still publishing, uh, and I'm, it may be done or close to done, uh, in implicit social cognition is led by collaborators right? And w who are now former students 
uh, who have gone on and they're pursuing those careers. So I am a, uh, a second fiddle, uh, as it were, uh, in, in that work. And I do miss doing it. And the things that I think need to be studied, I think what the issues you raised are really where I'm, are where my core interests are. Right. We see that there's links between these things and behavior. How far can we go to identify causal links? Yeah. That's a hard problem. It's one I, I like hard problems. That's one I once would like to spend more time on. The change dynamics and can we identify if changing a bias act in, in mind actually has an effect on behavior later. Yeah. Evidence for that's not so great. Uh, yeah. It's limited evidence, but it is not so great uh, what it does exist. Uh, so that's worth poking at further. Uh, and then some trying to sort of see this holistically. What people tend to st do with research and implicit bias is they tend to look at singular biases at a time. Uh, yeah. Study about race and study about gender, study about attractiveness. But of course, all of those things are in the mix. Yeah. When we're making judgments about people all of the time, you, you're not just one. Yeah, exactly. They're integrated. So how, yeah. How could we study that as a whole more holistic process of this person? Which sorts of things come to the fore? How do those things integrate together? So I'd be really interested to study that someday. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> so let's move on to what you're perhaps more known for, which is reproducibility within science and open science. So could you start by detailing what reproducibility within science actually is? So the one of the things that makes science as a way of knowing different than other ways of knowing is that in principle, we should be able to reproduce the evidence behind scientific claims. Yeah. We don't believe Isaac Newton's uh, laws of mechanics because we think Isaac Newton was a smart dude, so we should believe it they become believable because you can take those principles, the theories, the, ex the explanations, and then you can design a study and, and get evidence supporting those again and again and again, unless you're moving really, really fast. Uh, so the, the core of reproducibility or replicability is let's create a discipline where the foundations of knowledge are things that don't depend on reliance on authority or on trusting a person, but rather on the evidence itself. And if we can specify the basis of that evidence, the methodology we use to get that kind of evidence, and then others can do it independently, then that evidence becomes highly credible. And if we have a, a system, an entire discipline, all of science that takes seriously that notion of replicability as a core percept, then the whole discipline becomes more trustworthy because you know that if the, it is operating efficiently and effectively, then that evidence in different parts is credible because it's replicated, it's replicable, uh, and we can trust it and build on it as a consequence. Great. So what happened then? In 2011, um, <laughs> <laughs> you set up a reproducibility, um, reproducibility project. So what um, sparked that? Yeah, well, there, there's a, a lot of things. So the, for me, the start, uh, of interest in issues about reproducibility was in my uh, second year of graduate school taking a research methods course with Alan Kasdan. And uh, in that course, this is now you know, 1997, uh, in that course, we read these papers from the 1950s and 1960s and early 1970s from Jacob Cohen, uh, Paul Meal, Tony Greenwald, Robert Rosenthal, these are methodologists from the prior generation, as it were, uh, who wrote these papers saying, 
research is pretty underpowered. We shouldn't be finding the effects that we're finding. Oh, the literature is filled with positive results. We clearly, given the power and given how research is done, clearly stuff's missing. There's yeah. a file drawer that suggests that people are ignoring negative results and only promoting positive results. And then they articulate all these things like, well, because of these behaviors, the literature is much less trustworthy than we think it is. And they even generated some estimates. Like Tony Greenwald's paper, I think, estimates just with publication bias. No word about p-hacking at that point. Yeah. Just based on publication bias, we expect about 30, 35% of the published literature to be false positives. And I'm reading these papers. Right? This, is, this is late 90s. Yeah. These are papers that were written 30 years or so before. And they lay out all these problems. Very compelling evidence to me. And they identify solutions. And I'm thinking, what in the world? Like, this, this reads like it could have been written today. And you read them today, today, and it yeah. still feels like they could have been written today. And we've, so we've known about this problem. We've known about these potential solutions. And we're still, like, this is still the case? Like, what's going on? Like, wh wh what's happening here? Yeah. And uh, the discussions among my graduate student cohort in response to those papers are the kind of discussions that I think every graduate student cohort has, which is you enter science thinking the way about how you think science is done. And then you learn in those first few years of graduate school how science is actually done. And you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, the, like I thought I was just kind of going in and I'm studying stuff and then I find out what I learned and I share it with others and they say, oh, I don't know, what about this, what about that? And it's just an ongoing conversation of dead ends and initial positives and trying to figure it all out. Turns out it's, no, no, you got to get papers. You got to get grants. And to get papers, you got to get these really exciting results. And now ignore that stuff because that's not going to get you the papers. But the papers are really what you need in order to get your career. It's like, oh my gosh. Okay, there is a dysfunctional system of how all of this works to have people be able to have careers and advance in their careers is not the same thing, it seems, as what it means to do good science, yeah. at least how I had conceived of it. And we all seem to know, and we're, we're not doing anything about it. Like, what is going on? Like, how, how are we all, we're, we're all complicit in this system. Yeah. We all recognize the system is screwed up. We're emphasizing all these, the wrong things, and yet we're all players in that system. So that's, you know, that's late 90s. And what uh, and I, I became a faculty member at UVA, University of Virginia in 2002, uh, out of graduate school. And the main thing that I had decided to do in response to this was say, well, I can't fix the whole field. Like, that's ridiculous. So, but I can do better work myself. Right. Uh, and so in grad school, the first step was we read all these things about low power research. We got to find a way to increase our power. This is a long answer to where your question is. <laughs> it's fine. No, please. Okay. Uh, and so the, how can we increase our power? I, I, you know, I was at Yale. Our subject pool is tiny. Uh, so our first thing was the first summer we did this, we went, went out to the beach, Hammonasset Beach. We set up a tent and we gave people a dollar or a lottery ticket or a soda to participate in a 10-minute study. We set up little booths in the beach. We got like 400 people participating in studies over the course of the summer. And that was great. Like now we've doubled our sample size. Right. Uh, and we got, you know, a lot of sun and, uh, and got to spend some time on the beach. So that seemed good, but it seemed highly effortful. 
uh, especially for bringing computers out with the sand. That was not a good, <laughs> good thing. Uh, so the second idea was, well, we can solve power maybe by taking advantage of this internet thing. Right? I, I had that computer engineering training as an undergrad. Maybe <laughs> that useful, for useful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe I can actually use this. So let's build a website and see if people will do studies on the web. That would be cool. So we built Project Implicit, and that was a stunning, uh, stunning in the in the sense of surprising uh, success. Right. Uh, we did not anticipate how well that would go. But it solved the power problem. Okay, now we've got plenty of power. So I get to, uh, I'm going to speed this up. I'm, so we get to being a faculty member. What's the next thing I can do? Well, I can, I can increase transparency. There's all this problem of yeah. publication bias. There's problems of people not sharing. So what we'll do in, in our lab is we'll post our papers on my website as soon as we've finished them so that people can see them before they're published to try to accelerate that dissemination. So we just publish, post manuscripts on my webpage. And maybe we can share more of our materials. So we design these IATs, we create all the stimulus materials. Let's post that on my personal webpage. And we could post the data, but that, that's hard. We don't have enough room for data. But then in 2005, uh, a service called Dataverse started at Harvard uh, and it offered anybody that wanted to the ability to share data. So we signed up for a Dataverse account and I started posting our data sets associated with our papers on the Dataverse. And so now we've got lots of the things being transparent. Oh, great. This is helping with making our research more available. People started downloading. Some people reused our data sets and our materials and, and then would cite us. Like, oh, wow, we're even increasing our impact. But the, throughout all of that, getting to the question of reproducibility yeah. in 2011, throughout this, now we have this high, with way to do high-powered research. We can collect lots of people at our website. Um, we are sharing our stuff. Uh, and trying to make that as reproducible as we can for others to use. But what we started to do in our work, when we were excited about a new finding we saw from somebody else, is we would first replicate it. Because we have enough power and we have a steady stream of participants, it was relatively easy for us to do the thing that would be considered good practice, but is hard to do for people that don't have a lot of access to samples. And that is, let's make sure we can get what they got. We'll start there. And then we'll do our spin-off of trying it this way, trying it that way to try to test the phenomenon uh, in, in the ways that we got excited about because it's such an interesting finding. And again and again and again, we would get stopped at square one where we said, okay, they've got a cool finding. Let's repeat the methodology, get their finding, and then we'll do our extensions. We could not repeat their finding. And then we would say, wait a second, what happened? How do we screw this up? So then we'd go, Okay, let's try this, let's try that, we'll do it again, fail to get their finding. Let's ask them for help. What do we do wrong? And they say, oh, it looks all right, or here's some changes, still can't get their finding. So we've, we had internally repeated experience of this, uh, just in the process of doing our research. And then of course, other people report similar kinds of things, especially when you're at a conference and you're saying, oh yeah, remember that finding? Oh yeah, we, we couldn't get it. We, yeah. we spent years trying to do something with that. We couldn't get anything. So there was this latent uh, conversation that was more in the, you know, at, at the bar at a conference than part of the public discussion, which was, oh, we don't know what to trust in this literature. And either we are just screw ups and people have the magic sauce when they get their original findings. And when people try to extend them or replicate them, they just can't do it. Uh, or there is some problem uh, that those findings aren't as credible uh, as they seem. And so that had been a persistent conversation of concern of 
but not really with much evidence to decide what to do. Uh, and then 2011, I think, had a few events that really brought those concerns to a fore to everybody, like made everybody start talking about this in a different way. One was Diedrich Stoppel uh, fraud case, 50 papers uh, ended up being retracted, a stunning uh, case of made up data uh, and a recognition, the, you know, there's lots of parts of that story, but the, the core I think for relevance to reproducibility was this recognition of these papers got all got published, have been in the literature for a while, been getting cited, and no one recognized that some of them might have been flawed. Like maybe he made up data for true things across 50 papers, but there, but that's unlikely. Right. And there was no case beforehand to suggest that, oh, there's something wrong here. This, this, this doesn't happen when I try to do it. So no one was doing replication. Second was that Daryl Bem, who is an amazing guy, incredibly creative, uh, big impact on field, the field of social psychology, published a paper uh, suggesting that ESP is true in JPSP, the best journal of social psychology. And it was so stunning, not because ESP isn't true, which it isn't, uh, is so stunning because he followed all the rules for what one does to publish a paper in JPSP. Could you yeah. just expand on ESP just for the benefit of the listeners? Yeah, so the so extrasensory perception being the very general uh, term, what he did uh, was he had studies that showed that events that will happen later influence you now right which is not how the world works right there's a causal sequence things that yeah. happen first <laughs> affect things that happen second not the other way around but he took standard paradigms of like priming where you flash the word butter and then you're faster to identify the word bread than some irre word irrelevant to butter and he instead presented bread and if you were later going to be flash butter then you would respond faster to bread than if you were later going to be flashed in other words. And that sounds crazy. It's because yeah. it is, that's crazy. That doesn't happen. And it, it was, he didn't use bread butter precisely, but it's that kind of a paradigm. So he has did these studies where he did this reverse, where the people were influenced now by things that were gonna happen later. And he published nine studies, eight of them showed significant evidence uh, for the phenomenon that he was studying. And they all built on each other and they had conceptual replications inside it. It was like, here it is. Here's the evidence that we have to now revise our beliefs. ESP is true. It's in our best journal. Uh, so what it, what that paper did for the research community, which it raised a, a very strong response, was that it confronted us with the reality of two decisions we had to make. Either we now have to believe in ESP, or we have to confront the possibility that the way we decide what good evidence is to get into our most prestigious journal it might be flawed. And a lot of the research community was well prepared to say what the flaws were. Right. <laughs> Why is it uh, that this was able to get in JPSP despite being arrived at a conclusion that, that is very, very unlikely to be true. Uh, and that really spurred some of the methodological uh, revolution. And then the third item just to mention was a rhetorically brilliant paper called False Positive Psychology uh, that essentially uh, is Leif Nelson, uh, Yuri Simonson, Joe Simmons uh, put this paper together. It is the, to me, the most rhetorically brilliant paper written uh, in psychology because uh, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't introduce many new ideas. It puts them 
in an in it presents them in a way that makes it inescapable for the reader. And what it puts in front of the reader is how it is that we as researchers make decisions about how to analyze our data and report what we found can be imbued with biases that make it much more likely that what we say we found is not actually true. And it just does it in a completely compelling way that sort of is shocking to people. I can, I can see myself doing those behaviors that the paper describes, of deciding about which variables to exclude, about deciding when to stop collecting data, about deciding whether to add covariates in my analysis or not. And what they're showing me is that what I thought was a, maybe a 5% likelihood of being wrong, of having a false positive, inflates to like a 60% possibility. Holy crap, what am I doing? So those three events sort of clustered in 2011 as essentially creating that opportunity. The opportunity for this latent concern in the community about maybe our literature isn't as credible as we think. Now let's, let's really look at it. Let's confront ourselves and get some evidence. And so one of the projects that we pursued that became a very big uh, collaboration was the, called the Reproducibility Project in Psychology. We tried to replicate 100 findings from a defined sample of studies from 2008. Uh, and we failed to replicate you know, about 60% of them. Uh, and there's lots of reasons that we might have failed to replicate, but just the fact that we tried to do this, tried to do it as well as we could, and still had a, a, a rate of success that was much lower than people would have expected, helped to sort of consolidate some of that discussion about what are we doing and do we need to do, find ways to do it better. Uh, and that's really, I think, what is at the core of this reproducibility discussion. Sorry, that went on longer. No, that, that's great. Um, so the studies that you chose to include in this, um, like how did you go about finding those studies? Because what you're essentially doing is a, is a science here as well, right? It's a, you're doing science about science, uh, meta-science. So you'd hope that like any study, um, your sample would be representative of the population which you're trying to generalize from. So how did you go about trying to do that? Yeah, and this we debated this a lot at the onset of uh, sort of it's easy to identify the ideal approach to study. Right, for sure. We take the whole psychology literature, defining the boundaries of that is pretty hard, but let's imagine we can define some boundaries of what psychology is, and then we randomly sample findings from that literature and reproduce them. Uh, and we have to do enough of them to make the sampling sufficient to generalize to that population. That's not a study that's possible to do. And there are many reasons that right. it's impossible very quickly. So we had to figure out how can we maximize the information value with a study design that we can actually accomplish? And how can we make sure that we do it in a way that you as a reader can see, oh, I don't know the how well that will generalize to X, Y, and Z, but they've given me the information to be able to assess that. So I think in, Almost all, and basically that's the, what happens in every research application, right? None of us yeah. ever run the perfect study. We run the studies that get as close to the idea of what we want to make an inference about as we can. And then it's our responsibility to identify the gaps. What is it that we didn't, weren't able to do in a representative sample of the world's population, for example, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, so in this case, what we decided to do is let's take three journals uh, that are prominent, high-impact, well-regarded journals, Psychological Science, uh, JEP-LMC, Learning, Memory, and Cognition, uh, and JPSP, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, 
let's limit it to a single year, 2008. And then let's start with the articles that came out in the first issue in that year and try to identify a study from each of them. And we, we just said, well, we don't want to have a biased selection of studies. So let's just choose the last study by default, uh, just to have one to choose. Uh, and then match them, as many of them as possible, with teams that are capable of doing uh, a replication. Because also, in the ideal context, you would randomly assign people to which studies they do. But then, of course, they may not have the right expertise to do yeah. that. So you have to have, so it's, there's a lot of competing interests for how do you run the best studies that you can and collect a sample that people would take seriously as saying something about more than just the studies that you selected. Uh, and so the, that final sample of 100 is from about 160 or so that could have been selected. So there's already in the set that we made available for selection, there is some bias of which ones got selected and which ones didn't. But you can see all of them. So you can investigate if you want to see what potential impacts of bias there might have been there. You can see in our reporting all of the studies that weren't selected and all the ones that were. So you can study, is there a difference by sample size? Is there a difference by subfield? Is there a difference by what the strength of the evidence were? If you have people assess whether the findings are more credible or not, did they happen to pick ones that were less credible? So all of that's there uh, to be able to examine the bias in more detail. But the in doing this, like my experience with many of the other ones, the most common reason that we weren't able to conduct a study is practical. Right. And the, it was, you know, they, they did a 20 year longitudinal study of 20,000 uh, Dutch children uh, through their life. Okay. We can't do, we can't do that. Uh, that's a lot of money yeah. uh, and a lot of time. And it'd be awesome to do that, but we can't do that. Um, so those were the, most common errors. And so what essentially a lot of these systematic replications get capped at is studies that are feasible to get done with the resources. That yeah. are available. And so you can generate lots of plausible hypotheses about whether the bias would go one way or another uh, with studies that are harder to replicate. But that's sort of where we landed uh, in trying to, to do the studies. That's it. So what would you say um, drives these issues with reproducibility? So is it sketchy scientists or more so honest scientists that perhaps are not aware of their biases that they take in to their studies? Yeah, well, my, I think if pe there are certainly people that do deliberately bad behaviors in, in any area of work. Who are they? Um, <laughs> they yeah, who else? I have a list. Have a list. Uh, <laughs> the, the, but the, the, the numbers of people that get into science in order to make up science to get papers yeah. is small. It's got to be small because that's a real stupid way to spend your time. Yeah. Right? If you're going to do something fraudulently, go do something that will make you a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Like, oh, I, look at all these papers I have. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you, that is a big waste of fraud time. Uh, so I, fraud happens. There's lots of evidence of dramatic fraud and people get caught into whatever is their domain of inquiry, the pressures of trying to survive and thrive. So those kinds of misbehaviors do occur. But I think that for the challenges of replicability and reproducibility, I think that represents a very, very small portion of the problem. I think most of the challenge is above the intentional fraud line and in the zone of, I'm trying to do this right, but I have motivated reasoning. I have lots of stuff happening behind the scene, unwanted biases. Oh, that might be implicit or even automatic. 
yeah. uh, could be shaping the decisions that I make and how I do uh, my science. And there are social cultural pressures like journals don't want to see the negative results. And I don't think it's worth my time to write up the negative results. And I don't get rewarded for sharing my data, making things more replicable. So there is a structural problem that is cultural and there is human reasoning bias. And neither of those are, you're a bad person. Yeah. Both of those are, this culture is dysfunctional. We need to change those systems of rewards. And we need mechanisms outside of our good intentions to try to address the biases that we might bring to the decisions that we make. Right. Just like that hiring manager might need some structure to help her to avoid bias in the attractiveness or race or gender or otherwise of the candidates, we might need external systems, decision-making processes to help us as scientists to avoid bias in producing the outputs that we produce. So how do you go about um, incentivizing researchers to produce more honest science? Because there is this conflict between what what they'll be rewarded if they publish and, well, trying to make science as true as possible. So how do you go about making these things not in conflict? Yeah, no, this is, this is the core challenge is exactly yeah. what you're identifying here. And I think there are the way we have sort of a theory of change. It's not sort of, we have a theory of change model that we operate with as an organization through the center for open science. That is uh, that we've represented as a pyramid when I talk about this in uh, public, but the core idea is that there is a set of behaviors that we want to try to promote. And that is being more transparent, with your whole research process, right? Not just what you found, not just share all of that, but also share the materials that you generated so that someone else could take those materials and replicate your findings. The data that you collected, anonymized so that it's not, uh, you're not sharing sensitive private information for others, but others can take the uh, data and reproduce uh, your findings or aggregate them with others. And ideally, get people to make, be clear at the outset, before they've observed the outcomes, which things are part of their research plan, their analysis plan, what they will report no matter what, because they don't know what the results are yet, versus those things that are discovered after the fact. When you get into your data, when you realize, oh my gosh, I got that all wrong. I wonder what's going on in here. And you explore the data to try to generate new possibilities, new discoveries. So this is done through stuff like pre-registering? Right. So pre-registration is the mechanism by which we can distinguish plans in advance versus observations after the fact. So if we can get people to pre-register, we can get them to share their materials, share their data, be open about as much of the process as possible. For us, that's the behavior change that will facilitate all of the rest of robustness in science. But the question is, how do you get there? How do you get those things to be adopted broadly? And for us, the, the theory of change is you minimally need to be able to make the behavior possible. It needs to be possible for people to pre-register their work or to share their data. So that, that requires technology. And so the open science framework, the OSF, uh, is intended to provide a mechanism to make it possible to do these behaviors. And each year we try to make it easier and easier to use it to make it easy. Because it's not just that it's possible, if you ask researchers to do these things and they're really burdensome and there are extra things they have to do on top of the work that they're already doing, they're not going to do them because we're busy and 
I don't be psychologically don't naive, arguably. Yeah, right, yeah. right, exactly, right. And, and I don't want to be psychologically <laughs> no. Man, I got too many degrees <laughs> for that. <laughs> so, uh, so the, uh, the integrated into people's workflow and providing them a tool that actually supports them doing their work uh, is part of the goal of the OSF, right? Let's make a tool so that collaborators can work with each other more efficiently. They can store things in the cloud and they'll never lose them for their own use again and then make it trivial for them to make that publicly accessible. So make it possible and make it easy. And then it's the culture part, norms, incentives, and policies. So for norms, you have to see that other people in your field are doing the behaviors. We yeah. might say, oh yeah, idealistically, sure, it'd be great to share all those, but nobody in my field does that. So you gotta make it visible that other people are doing the behaviors. And because there's enough idealists that'll do the behaviors just because they think they're the right thing to do, they don't care about the damn reward system. If you can make it visible that they're doing it, then it becomes more likely that other people will see that behavior and say, oh, maybe that's a thing we do now. Oh, I've, I've always thought that was a good idea, but I've never seen other people doing it. Oh, okay, maybe I'll do it. And then as they start to do it, then others start to see, oh, that is a thing. I'm just yeah. entering the field. People share data. Okay, maybe I'll share data. Right? This is fundamentals about how norms uh, spread in a community. And the great thing about the norms for open science, right? these behaviors, pre-registration, open data, open sharing, uh, the great thing is that the norms are already valued. So you don't have to convince people that those things are good ideas for science. Everybody recognizes those are good for science. Sure. With variation and debates about under what conditions, when they're good. Uh, but by and large, transparency is known as a good. It's more of you just need to show that transparency is being done. And it's happening in the community. And that the value for it then just comes, can help accelerate the adoption. But that just the norms isn't enough for everybody, right? You, so the incentives becomes important. What's, what's in it for me? I can see that everybody does it, but I'm still getting the job because I'm producing more papers. I'm producing more exciting findings. So maybe it's not in my interest uh, to do those open behaviors. So the incentives piece is important for trying to get aligned the values that we have with the reward systems as they occur. And for that to really work, you have to get the stakeholders involved the institutions that decide who to hire and who to promote, uh, the journals to decide what papers get in, uh, and the funders who decide where to give the money. Uh, those are the critical mechanisms yeah. for changing the incentive landscape and the policy landscape for that matter for individual researchers. So what we try to do with them, and there's many people involved in trying to shift these uh, incentive landscapes across a variety of different disciplines and uh, different approaches to doing it, trying to do is figure out how is it that they can incrementally but effectively change the incentive landscape and the policy landscape for researchers to align those values and practices. And the where it's easiest and we've made the most progress so far as a community uh, is with journals. So like an incentive change for journals is the registered reports publishing model. This model, it's it, shifts a very key part of the decision process, but dramatically changes the incentives. So in the normal model for publishing, you do all of your research, you write up the paper, then you submit it for peer review at the journal to get published. <clears throat> so all the incentives are get beautiful results so that it gets through uh, peer review, ignore all the negative results, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. With registered reports, the peer review happens at the proposal stage. 
you submit your research questions, some preliminary evidence that what you're doing is viable, and your methodology of what you're going to test with the question that you have. And the peer reviewers decide, is it an important question? Is it an effective test to test the question? And if they ultimately agree, then you get acceptance then. In principle, if you follow through with what you said you're gonna do and do it well, you will get published regardless of the outcome. With this model, now my incentives aren't to get beautiful results because yeah. publication isn't contingent on the results. In this model, my incentives are ask important questions and design beautiful methods to test those questions. And those are where the incentives should be. And it also builds in pre-registration because I have to pre-commit. So how do we become better assessors of the reliability of scientific evidence every day now? Amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, there's lots of research out there. So how can we better piece apart the good science versus the bad science? Yeah, it's a great question. The, the, you know, we all uh, love to bash on peer review as an ineffective method for evaluating the quality of research because we know that the journal doesn't mean just because it got through peer review, you can trust it or not. Uh, likewise, there's lots of unreliability in how peer review uh, evaluates. And so the, the decisions are idiosyncratic, article by article. So we decry all of these things about peer review. And yet peer review is probably the most important thing we have for evaluating the quality of research. Uh, and so I think the key part for, the, for an in general answer, and then for us individually, you can answer separately, but an in general answer is that we need to broaden our conception of peer review and practice. Because already peer review and practice happens from the onset of research through well past it's being published, right? Do I decide decided or not is a form of peer review. Do we reevaluate uh, whether we believe that particular evidence 10 years after it was published is a part of peer review. So if we can better conceive of and treat peer review as a continuous process, rather than a discrete process between submission and publication, we will get more out of what peer review can provide for helping us as a research community decide what to trust. So that is one sort of design consideration of how we can improve science and evaluation of the credibility of claims is broaden peer review as it happens. Second factor that is a, a, a culture factor is more transparency. The more that we can see how it is, you are, how you can see how it is I arrived at my claims, the better able you are to evaluate their credibility. And it may not be you that's reanalyzing it, but if someone can, then you as an observer of that exchange between that person who's reanalyzing my data and saying, ah, I didn't find what you found. And I say, oh, well, you screwed it up. Blah, 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 blah you can then assess the credibility because other people are able to tangle with the actual evidence I generated, not just the report of me saying what I did. So transparency of data, materials, code, those really help uh, with evaluation of credibility. For us individually, especially in the context of things like very rapid moving science and trying to understand you know, what, what, how to deal with the pandemic, uh, you know, do I wear masks or not? Do, do I fly or not? These are decisions that we are making individually and there's lots of claims coming out in the scientific literature and we have to have, try to assess what of this do we trust what do we use and there there are cues that we know as researchers that we can employ for this right we know that things that are more transparent are holding all else equal more trustworthy than things that are not because we can we can find the problems in the transparent stuff we can't find the problems in the not transparent stuff 
we can have more confidence if p-values are lower than if they are higher, if people are using no hypothesis significance testing. Again, all else being equal, recognizing that there's lots and lots and lots of exceptions, but on average, that will uh, be true to some small extent. We can know that better design studies, if we can actually evaluate the design, are ones we can draw more conclusions from, et cetera, et cetera. So there's applying all the research methodology to evaluation, but we also don't have time for that individually for all these kinds. I can't write right. all the COVID papers. So what would be great is to have some early heuristics that can help direct our attention to those things that are highly credible or those things that may not be so credible that need a closer look. So one of the projects that we're involved with now is called SCORE. It's a project funded by DARPA. And the goal of SCORE is to create automatic indicators of credibility of research claims. So can we, in the aspirational aim, open up a paper and have the paper have a score, and then each individual claim in the paper of what we found have a score. This is a 92, this one's a 37, that one's a 45. So that as a reader, then you can very rapidly assess what of this is highly credible and which of it do we need to look at more closely. Um, that would be useful as some of that very early decision-making for where to go deeper. Of course, it's also like, well, can we actually create that? And can we create yeah. scores that are valid? Well, that's why we're doing the research. Uh, and there's some early evidence uh, that that might be achievable with some degree of validity. How much validity? Not at all yet clear. Um, so for example, we've run prediction markets uh, with economist colleagues on the replication studies before they were conducted, where people bet on whether they thought the finding would replicate or not. And those markets, were quite good at anticipating which findings were replicable and not replicable. Right. A couple of other teams have done machine learning that matches the effectiveness of those prediction markets, saying that the machines might be able to extract some information from those original papers to help assess their credibility. So we have some proof of concept that parts of that may be possible, but we don't yet know is how systematic, how generalizable, and how reliable, and then ultimately how valid uh, we can make those inferences. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with who'd like to get more involved in the work that you do? Yeah, well, uh, I encourage anybody that is interested in learning about these things to visit the COS website, cos.io, or to adopt the Open Science Framework, osf.io. It's a free uh, service available for anyone to use for making their research more transparent. You can always email me. My, my email address is, is not so hard to find uh, out there in the world. Uh, and I also just want to express the, the immense gratitude that I feel for the research community in the change that has happened over the last eight years. Right? The attention can get focused on COS as an organization or, or me in particular, but really the story of the culture change that has happened is a collective action story. Uh, you can't change a culture with individuals saying, we're going to change. Change happens in a culture like this because many people get involved in changing their own practices and working together to change the systems uh, as they work, the, those stakeholders that hold the keys to the incentives uh, and policies. And there are not dozens, not hundreds, there are thousands of people that have made their own individual contributions that cumulatively have had a dramatic effect already and are making it easier and easier to try to complete this work, as it were, uh, to have a more transparent discipline. Thanks for listening to this episode of Project Psychology. If you'd like to find out more about what we do, like and follow us on Facebook, our Oxford University Psychology Society. 
where you can also give your suggestions on which guests you'd like to see for future episodes of the podcast. Stay tuned for next week's discussion with Dr. Richard Bentall on issues related to mental health disorder classifications. Hope you can join me on the next episode of Project Psychology.